Thank you for joining us. We were just singing the, the, the line, holy design this place and time that I might seek and find my God. And I don't know what you thought of when you were singing that line, but I thought of several things and I've shared this with each service today. I think first and foremost, there's this kind of individual personal idea embedded in that, that, that each of us is saying like, holy design is this place and time for me. Like I am here and it's not an accident. And we believe that, that if you're here with us today, whether you're joining us online, you're here in person, like it's not coincidence that you're here today. You're here by God's holy design. Regardless of why you think you came, God has also brought you here to speak to you personally today. But bigger than that really is, is your life story is not an accident either. Like regardless of what your parents intended, when you were conceived, right, you are here today, this space and time, you as a human being are walking the earth right now because of God's holy design. And we apply that even to the life of our church, that, that the way God's plans are, have unfolded for Solid Rock Church through, through decades of time now here, whether that's staff members or, or elders or community group leaders and changes and things that have happened, it's all happened according to his divine plan, his holy design. And so now we apply that to things like the new building, which are, it's easy to get frustrated or apprehensive when plans change. And I told you last week to, to change the date on your calendar. Good news, I'm not asking you to do that today. However, should it happen, right, rather than getting frustrated with that, that we would see that as God's holy design and we would be excited about that, that we, we get in there at exactly the moment he means for us to. And so um, with that being said, right now, the plan is for us to be in again on April 30th for Vision Night uh, to celebrate God's holy design for Solid Rock Church and the way he has moved through decades here without that building, the way he will continue to move with or without that building according to his plans. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that special evening with us. Um, if you're new visiting, we invite you to that. If you've been a longtime solid rocker, we encourage you to think about people who may be missing. Maybe somebody who's moved or even switched churches. We wanna invite them to come and be a part of that evening to celebrate the work that the Lord has done. And so please, please mark your calendars and extend those, those invitations. With that is, this is our week for like final inspections and hopefully our, cert our certificate of occupancy. Um, so that next Saturday, we can actually do a big work day. And so I would also encourage you, if you're available, to tentatively plan on being a part of that. We'll have a little bit of outdoor work, but a lot of indoor, putting furniture together, moving chairs in, those sorts of things. But really, that's going to mark about five or six days of opportunities for you to get involved and help. We've got another chair shipment coming in the middle of the week and several other opportunities that we'll, we'll make you aware of. But if you could just mark your calendar starting this coming Saturday for the next five, six days leading up to the 30th, if you're available, we'd love to have you pitch in and just help. Uh, whether that's putting furniture together, setting up chairs, wiping down counters, cleaning floors, setting things up. There'll be a lot to do. So uh, that's where we are. And there's the announcement there for that. Again, all of this is according to God's holy design for this place and time. So welcome you. If you're visiting with us today, we're especially glad that you're here. Uh, we're going through the book of John, the gospel of John together. Uh, we do this often here at Solid Rock. We will go through a book of the Bible together. And we've been in the Gospel of John now for over a year, just to give you some bearings. Uh, we should wrap it up by uh, Christmas season this year. But we've made it to chapter 13. And we've made it to a, a fairly familiar story, uh, known not just inside the church, but outside the church, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So there's a good chance you've heard some version of this story. 
And in the story in and of itself, it's a beautiful expression of God's love and, and Jesus's humility for us. Um, but what we're gonna do today is look deep into this conversation between Jesus and Peter to see how Jesus washing his disciples' feet, um, the impact and the application for our lives even today. And so that's where we're headed today um, in the scripture. So we're gonna start with a few questions I want you to think about though. And we're gonna come back and ask these questions at the end as well. I want you to think about a couple of things. Do you know with certainty where you stand with God? Okay, and I don't want you to rush into answering that question. Think about it. Do you know with certainty where you stand with God? I'll follow it up with a couple of other questions. Do you know with certainty that all of your sins have been forgiven? and you have been made righteous, and there is therefore no condemnation over your life. Do you know that with certainty? And we're gonna come back and we're gonna ask those questions again at the end, how we can know with certainty answers to questions like those, and how that this beautiful expression of love and washing the disciples' feet Jesus answers those questions for us. So we're gonna start in verse one, as Ken was reading earlier. And we're gonna get a timestamp here. We're gonna read in verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover. So the feast of the Passover uh, took place either late on Thursday or early on Friday, depending which part of Israel you were from. But essentially this is Thursday in the last week of the ministry and life of Christ leading up to the cross. And so he's gonna gather in the upper room to share this Passover meal with the disciples. And so this is before the feast that this occurs, okay? And so that gives us kind of some bearings on what's about to happen. So after this, what's gonna happen is, so Jesus is gonna wash the disciples' feet. They're gonna share a meal together. It's at the end of this meal where he takes the bread and breaks it and says what? Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. It's in this meal at more than likely the fourth cup that was part of this celebration, this cup of redemption. He passed it out and said, drink of it, all of you. This cup represents my blood, which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And shortly after that is where he goes out into the garden to pray and invites his disciples to come and pray with him to only have them, what, fall asleep. He begins to pray in agony, sweating drops of blood. This is where he prays, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Only to what? To come up from that prayer time to see Judas with a group of soldiers making their way to him, to arrest him, to take him to trial after trial, eventually appearing before Pilate and then crucified. All of that is about to unfold. So that time stamp is really important. It's really significant to understand the fullness of the story. So John says, hey, listen, this was right at the Passover feast. So now before the Passover feast, when Jesus knew his hour had come, so this is on his mind, to do what? To depart out of this world to, to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's really important. From John's perspective, in the gospel, as he's writing this down, he's nearing the end of the narrative of the life and ministry of Christ. And he wants us to know that Jesus came into the world, loving the world, and that he loved us to the end. So as he's wrapping up these end time events in terms of Jesus's life and ministry, these are expressions of his love. 
It's interesting because after this, in the Gospel of John, we're going to get four chapters of Jesus' teaching. And then on the the backside of that, we're going to get the cross. And so this four chapters of Jesus' final teaching with his disciples is bookended by these beautiful expressions of love, which I believe are really intimately connected. Jesus washing the disciples' feet and Jesus dying on the cross. We're going to see that here today together. Now, the next verse, verse 2, says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we're going to hold on to that thought, okay? It's going to be really helpful. So as we think about the significance of really anybody washing somebody else's feet, but especially the Son of God, the Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, humbling himself to wash the disciples' feet. That's a beautiful act and expression of love. But what makes it even more beautiful is to understand where the hearts of these disciples were. Because it'd be easy to say, oh, these are the faithful ones. These are the ones who held with him to the end. These are the ones who are faithfully hanging on to every word, obeying every command. And we look deeper into the scriptures and realize that's not so. Matter of fact, if we look at the gospel of Luke in chapter 22, we recognize that there was, a, there was a really interesting discussion that breaks out among the disciples here in this moment. Luke 22 records this, verse 24. A dispute also rose, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. What? This is what you're thinking about in the final hours of Christ? But this is what's on your mind is who's the greatest? No, I am. No, I am. And Jesus responds to them and says in verse 25, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, we don't know for sure if that, if that conversation takes place before he washes their feet or after, but this is all unfolding uh, more than likely in this upper room moment where Jesus is with his disciples. And so regardless of if that, hap- that conversation happens before or after, we know where the hearts of the disciples are, right? They're focused on self-promotion. Like they're focused on who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's Jesus's favorite? And Jesus tells them, guys, you're completely missing it. The greatest among us should be the servants. And so here we are in this moment with the disciples. Now, so we've got these disciples and, 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 and again, this is what's on their mind. In the final hours of Christ, who's his favorite? Who's, who's the greatest? And then we got Peter. And by the end of John 13, before they're done with this meal and they're done with their time together in the upper room, Jesus is gonna say, oh, by the way, Peter, You're going to deny me three times. Look forward to John 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, well, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Oh, Peter, you're so precious. Jesus responds in 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So we know where the hearts of the disciples were. We know where Peter was. 
And not only that, verse tells us that Judas has already in his heart been given over to the devil to betray him. These are the men whose feet Jesus washes, right? So it takes this beautiful moment and makes it even more beautiful, even more powerful to see Jesus humbly washing the feet of half-hearted, arrogant, self-promoting, even one who has betrayed him. Disciples. So verse three, we're gonna get some insight. And what we're gonna do, just to give you some bearings, we're gonna hit part one of this today. And in two weeks, we're gonna come back for part two, whether we're in this building or the new building. And we're gonna hit part two, and we're gonna come back to this very verse we're about to read. So I'm gonna emphasize a couple of things here, and then we'll pull it back out in a few weeks. But verse three, Jesus knowing that's really important. When we begin to ask the question, why would Jesus, how could he do this? How could he humble, like how could I ever get to a place where I could humble myself and serve others this way? Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That's a really important verse. Jesus knew who he was and he knew his father had a plan. So anything God asked of him, he could do it. Right, so that's what John's saying here. In this moment, Jesus knows. He knows who he is, and he knows his father has given all things into his hands. His father has a plan, and so therefore, verse four, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. You can just see it, can't you? Then he poured water into a basin, and one by one, he began to go to each disciple And he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What a beautiful, beautiful expression of the love of Jesus. Now think about that. I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed. So this is a culture where the actions that Jesus is taking here is not really unusual. Okay, so it wasn't like the, the disciples were like, wait, what is this thing he's doing? I've never seen this before. Like this was common practice, at, at least among the wealthy and those of nobility. If you had money, uh, you had people who worked for you in your house, you had servants who helped with food and helped with livestock and helped with laundry. And the lowest position on the, on the totem pole, if you will, was the foot washer. That's the bottom of the barrel of the servants. And so this was entry level. This was if you messed up, you got demoted. But it wasn't uncommon, okay? So what's, what's uncommon about this is that Jesus is the one doing it. That's what's uncommon here, right? These guys should have been washing his feet. We just saw this a few days before this in Bethany uh, where Jesus is, is there in the town where Lazarus was raised from the dead and they throw this huge dinner for him. And Mary, Mary Martha, she comes in with this expensive perfume. So she's not just using water and a towel. She takes expensive perfume in her hair and washes Jesus's feet. It's this expression of devotion and worship saying, even my best is not worthy enough to present to you, Jesus. I'm taking my best, my most expensive, my hair and my, and my most expensive perfume and I'm laying them at your feet as an expression of worship and devotion. And now here Jesus is washing these guys' feet. Now, I don't know, again, if you've ever had this happen, the closest that I've ever had to something like this, you think, okay, so in this culture, you guys probably know all this, uh, dirt roads, so no paved roads, no concrete sidewalks, and they walked around barefooted and with sandals on. So you can imagine, feet got grimy in a hurry, dirty, nasty. So 
Um, uh, it's been about six years ago. We were in the Philippines, and, and when we were in the Philippines at this particular time, we were out in this kind of remote area where I've told stories about this. So for about five days, we're walking around in, in flip-flops and sandals, and it's raining every day, and it's mud, and it's a dirt, remote mountain village, right? So you can imagine what our feet looked like by the end of the week. It was, na- it was pretty nappy. So we, we come out of the, the rainforest, and we're back into civilization, and then we fly to Manila, which is where we catch our international flight out of the Philippines. Well, that's where the, the Mall of Asia is. And so if we have downtime, we'll typically just spend a few hours in the Mall of Asia. So this particular trip, here we are, we're just tired, we're all just nasty, our feet are nasty. And Daniel Henderson, one of our elders, and Ryan Petzl, one of our members, and, and I, we decided we're going to get pedicures. <laughs> now this is less about the, uh, the, the toenail polish and more about we just got to get our feet clean. And I'll never forget this moment. Like I could see it in my mind, those poor ladies. Oh my gosh. They were like, they couldn't speak English, but you could tell by the look on their face, they were mortified. They were like, this is what American feet look like, huh? And we try to explain, we've been up in the mountains, you know, in the rainforest and it's dirty. And they're like, whatever. And, uh, and, and just cleaned our feet. And it was just such a, such a, like a, like, I don't know, it's like a humbling experience. This was, this was the common practice. But again, it's not the servant who's doing it here. The script has been flipped. It's the host of the party. It's the owner of the home. It's the king of all kings who's humbling himself. And he's not just washing one disciple's feet, he's washing 12 disciples' feet. Imagine how dirty and nasty that towel and that basin of water were by the end of this event. And yet, it's our Savior's hands coming in contact with the grime and the dirt himself. Now, we're gonna move forward into the part of the story where Peter and Jesus have a dialogue. And this is where I think we're gonna get the fullness of what Jesus is doing and even an understanding of the implications for each of us here today. And so I don't know what order he went in, but he makes it to Peter. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So we can, we can kind of understand Peter's question. God, Jesus, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Is that what you're about to do here? I don't know that I'm comfortable with this. Something's not right about this. Are you really gonna wash my feet? And Jesus responds, Peter, listen, you don't understand what I'm doing here. I get it. This seems odd to you. It seems like a flip script, a paradox of sorts, but you will understand it later, okay? But then the conversation continues, and Peter says to him in verse eight, you will never, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. And that word share means being a part of my disciples. You'll have no part in my kingdom. You'll have no, you'll have no, no relationship with me, Peter, if I don't do this. So on one hand, Peter's initial reaction is, I don't think so. What are you doing? Get up off the ground. You're not gonna wash my feet. I'll never let you wash my feet. And Jesus' response was what? Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be one of my disciples. And so here's what happens with Peter. Now the pendulum swings the other way. Verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If that's what it means, to be one of your followers, then, 
then don't stop with my feet. Wash all of me. And the pendulum swings the other way. My hands, my, my head, wash all of me if it means that I will have a share with you. If I will be included in your kingdom, if I'll be called one of your true followers, then wash all of me. And it's in Jesus' response to this that I really want to focus now. Now, in and of itself, this is a real story. It's not a parable. And it's a beautiful expression of Christ's love for us. But embedded in this conversation, I think, is, is deep theological truth now as Jesus responds to Peter. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So in a practical sense, if you lived in this culture, you got to bathe ever so often. And if you had just bathed the night before, you were still considered to be clean. But had you taken a journey and walked to this place, your feet would need to be washed. But if your feet were washed, you would be completely clean, okay? So it makes sense, okay? I understand what you're saying, Jesus. So the one who is bathed doesn't need to be bathed again. He just needs to have his feet washed. But then he says, now it's interesting because we think the dialogue is solely with Peter and he is speaking to Peter, but the word you is plural. You are clean. Who are the people in the room? The disciples. You, all of you, are already clean. Now, if we're simply looking at this from a practical surface level, we go, oh, y'all must have stopped and bathed somewhere from Bethany to Jerusalem. You just, Jesus just reminding the guys, hey, you've already had a bath. Right? Like, you remember, you're already clean, Peter. But look at what he says next. You are clean, all of you, except for what? One, but not every one of you. What? What are you saying? For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So we know who the betrayer is, it's Judas. Jesus is not saying, you guys are already clean, except for Judas. Remember how he missed bath time yesterday? And they're like, I thought I smelled something. That Judas, he never bathes. What John is telling us is that Jesus is speaking of a deeper theological truth here. The reason Judas is not clean, we know it, it's clear, why? Because he's betrayed Christ in his heart. His uncleanliness is what? The uncleanliness of his heart. That's so encouraging because now everybody else in the room is clean. Oh, you mean the 11 faithful ones? No, I mean the other 11 who were disputing about self-promotion and arrogance and the one who's about to betray Jesus publicly, they're all clean. That's, that's good news, church. Like one of the reasons we struggle to believe with certainty that we have been made righteous with God is because we continue to struggle with sin. Boom, just hit the nail on the head. There may be a hundred other reasons why you struggle and why you doubt, but one of the reasons you and I struggle to believe with certainty is because there is an ongoing struggle with sin. And Jesus didn't say to Peter, here's the deal I'll make with you, Peter. If from this moment forward, you'll get it right. If from this moment forward, you'll quit disobeying God, my father, if you'll quit denying me, if you'll just be perfectly faithful from this point forward, Peter, you'll be clean. No, Jesus said what? You are already clean. And I'm not talking about your body, Peter. 
and we begin to look forward to the cross, this beautiful expression of God through which the unrighteous are made clean. So to understand fully this idea of cleanliness and uncleanliness, I think it's helpful to go back even to the garden. At the moment that sin enters the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, the moment that God's righteous law was violated and broken, the direct immediate result in the hearts of Adam and Eve were shame. And that shame is what we mean by dirty, spiritually dirty. Shame feels dirty, doesn't it? It makes you feel dirty. What do you do when you're dirty? You try to hide that from people. What did Adam and Eve do? Immediately they began to hide the parts of their body that they felt were dirty from one another. They sewed fig leaves and started covering up, casting shadows on, on the places that they thought they were dirty. And then what do they do? Now we need to find a place to hide from God. We need to find another shadow where we can hide from our holy God. You see, that's why when we break God's law, we disobey God, we feel dirty. That's the shame of having disobeyed God or having sinned. Sin produces shame. So we think about the way that sin is described in the scriptures one of the ways that the, the Jews understood sin was that it was like, um, like bread, like dough. If you know about the difference between leaven and unleavened bread, one has yeast. Yeast is this like kind of growing, living, expanding thing that takes, you can take a huge lump of just pure dough, put a little bit of yeast in it, what happens? It spreads to the whole lump. Okay, and so they understood sin that way, that as a, as a human being, the smallest little sin will infect my life that way. The smallest sin in our household will infect our household. And so that's used often as a metaphor to describe the pursuit of holiness and, the, and, and the kind of removing of sin from one's life. You don't want right, to allow sin to infect and spread throughout your whole life and throughout your whole household, throughout your whole church, throughout your whole community. So you gotta get that sin out. Well, what's interesting is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter five, the apostle Paul is talking to the church, to Christians, and he brings this up. And I want you to listen to what seems to be a paradox of sorts as the apostle Paul uses this idea of leaven and unleaven to describe sin in our lives. This is verse seven of 1 Corinthians five. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That's a lump of dough. Paul just called you a lump. Just take it up with him, okay? So he's calling you a lump of dough and he's saying, cleanse out the old leaven. Get that sin out of your life. So then we, we begin to think, oh, well, that's how I'll get certainty that I've been made right with God. I'm gonna cleanse my life. I'm gonna get the sin out of my life. But then he says what? As you already are unleavened. So you could swap out those words for clean clean out the uncleanliness that you may be clean as you are already clean. He's saying, listen, Christians, become in practice, daily practice, what you already are by faith in Christ. Daily become what you already are. You're already clean. You're already made righteous. Now, in practice, what? Get the sin out of your life. Not so that you can have certainty that you're going to heaven, but because you already have certainty. Because what Christ has done, every day becoming what you already are in Christ. 
And this is why I believe he says to the disciples, the 11, guys, you're already clean. You don't need to bathe. You're already clean by your faith in me. Are you guys perfect? No, Peter's about to screw up. And when he screws up, will the rest of you remind him of this? He's already clean. But you do need this, you do need a foot washing. And I believe the implications here is that, listen, Christ follower, we never graduate from confession of sin and repentance. As a matter of fact, I would, I would say the opposite is true. Maturity in Christ is not getting to a place where you no longer have to own your sin, but it's getting to a place where confession and repentance are, are more and more common. What's, what's the opposite? Pride, hiding, walking in the shadows, the more mature we become in Christ, the more we believe the gospel, the more we're set free from the bondage of shame to do what? To say, you know what, I've, I've sinned and own it. And to sincerely repent of it. If it's sin against God, first we start there, but against another human being, like forgive me of this. Forgive me for the way my sin has hurt you. And one of our cultural values here is radical ownership of sin. And, and what we mean by that is like, if you get angry at your spouse and you yell at them, you don't just come back and say, hey, I'm sorry I yelled at you and then give a list of all the excuses why it was okay. And you don't only just say, hey, forgive me of what happened. Forgive me for the way that made you feel. But you say what? Forgive me for the way that I intended to make you feel. Because even though I don't want to admit, in that moment of my rage, I wanted you to feel little. And I wanted you to feel less than. And I wanted you to listen to me. And I wanted to control you. Like who? See, radical ownership of sin. That's what you meant in the moment, even if after the moment you forget that. And so we're not just making soft excuses. Hey, I'm really sorry for the way I'm here. I just had a really rough day. I didn't really mean to make you feel that way. No, actually in the moment I did. And that was wrong. Radical ownership of sin. That is the mark of a mature Christian. Now, before you elbow your spouse, <laughs> elbow yourself, Peter. So here in this beautiful moment, this beautiful expression of God's love and his mercy poured out through the expression of washing feet of a, of a group of unworthy, half-hearted, arrogant, self-promoting, about to betray Jesus followers. We see this beautiful expression in the words, you all are already clean. Just wanna end with a few verses from a letter that this same author, John, will write, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I want to read these verses. I want you to listen for the calling for Christians. Christ's follower, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, so instead of walking in the shadows and hiding in darkness, I'm walking in the light, transparency, owning sin, walking with my, with my weaknesses exposed, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Man, that's good news. He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, listen, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does it sound like John is certain? It does. If you will confess your sins with certainty, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all 
unrighteousness. And verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and, the, and his word is not in us. I'm, I'm thankful that John said this, even though sometimes it, 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 it convicts me. Because here's the, if I live as though I don't have sin, I'm essentially calling Jesus a liar. Whoa, why? Because Jesus came to the world to die for the sins of all men. And if I claim to be without sin, then I'm saying, oh, he came to the world to die for all the sins of all the men except for me. So glad. Me and Peter, right? We're good over here. Jesus, I'm so glad you died for the sins of everybody else. And Jesus is like, no, I died for you. And you, and you, and you, and you. And if you pretend that you don't have sin in your life, you're calling Jesus a liar. I'll let you take that up with him, okay? I'm not gonna mediate that conversation for you. And that's what John's saying here. So I'm gonna go back to these questions that I asked earlier. Do you know with certainty where you stand with God? Do you know with certainty that your sins have been forgiven, that you have been made righteous, cleansed from all unrighteousness, and that there is therefore no condemnation for you who are in Christ? Do you believe that with certainty? And you might ask, well, how can I know it with certainty? Here's how you can know it with certainty. It's the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is not ambiguous. It's not only given to the faithful few. The promise of the gospel is for all of us. And it's God's promise to you. And so here's what we do. What do we do with our doubts? We believe the gospel. That's what we do with them. So if, if we're struggling to believe with certainty, what you're struggling to believe is the gospel itself. That Christ has come, the son of God, the Messiah, to die for the sins of the world, including yours. And he not only died, he resurrected from the grave, overcoming sin and death, displaying his power over both, that whosoever would believe in him would be saved, forgiven, made righteous. Christ's follower, we need those mercies new every day. You need Jesus to wash your feet today. You need him to wash your feet tomorrow. You don't need to be bathed again like you need to be saved again, no. You need to walk in confession on a daily basis. So I'm gonna pray for us now. I don't know everybody in the room. And I certainly don't know where you are with God. But if you are at a place where you, you're, you're a Christian but you're still struggling with doubts and you're not quite sure what to do with those doubts, I'm gonna encourage you to talk to one of our elders or our pastors. Let us talk with you and pray with you. Maybe what you need today is just to confess sin. The scriptures say confess your sins to one another. But let's be clear, we aren't priests. I can't absolve you of your sin. So don't come share your sin with me thinking I can absolve, I can't. But what I can do is I can pray for you and walk you to Jesus, your high priest, and remind you that he can forgive you of your sins. So you may be a Christian here today and you may need to confess sin. Okay, that might be your mess- the message for you today. But you also might be here today thinking, man, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm far from God. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you would take a step of faith today to trust in Jesus as your savior, your Lord, your king, your rescuer. And so we'll have um, elders and pastors available to pray with anybody today who wants prayer. Uh, Nick is here, I'm here. Um, and there are some other elders and pastors in the room. Jeremy and Blake are around, Jeff is around please come grab one of us. You see somebody with a lanyard on that's an elder. We love to pray over you about anything going on. Sickness, anything going on, struggles, let us know. But what what we wanna do now is we wanna respond to how God has spoken to us in this 
holy design moment in time. So let's pray together and we'll respond. Father, thank you for this time. We don't mean that in a flippant way. We truly believe that you have ordained our time together today. We believe that, that God, as you've spoken to each one of us out of your word, that Father, now is a time for us to respond to that. For some of us, God, that means to pursue a life of confession and repentance. For some of us, that means to come to you in faith for the first time and to be bathed in the mercy and the grace of Jesus for the first time. And for others of us, it just means that we are to start walking daily in practice according to who we already are in Christ. Confession and repentance is, it would become a daily part of our life. So Father, we're here today to declare together with one voice our great need for you. And that need does not go away simply because we've been saved. Father, daily we need you. Every hour we need the mercy and the grace of Jesus. And so we're about to sing that and declare that together to you, oh God. We pray this in Jesus' name.